started. I like the old opening better. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. everyone and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. And to introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you my lovely wife, Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. <laughs> Hello. On today's episode, Nakia and I are discussing the legacy of the great Jim Henson and sitting down to watch Henson's The Dark Crystal from 1982. Nakia, there's a new Netflix prequel series, The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, dropping August 30th, just a few days after this episode drops. And the early reports seem to agree that it's actually really good. So that was my thin justification for watching The Dark Crystal this week. But really, I thought it would just give us an opportunity to talk about the Muppets, which we've never talked about before. Mm -hmm. And really, it was just an excuse for me to spend the past week under the auspices of research, <laughs> watching old Sesame Street and Muppet Show clips on YouTube. So really, I actually did very little research for mm-hmm. this episode. Mm-hmm. Mostly, I watched old clips and laughed my ass off. And then inevitably, I went and I watched Jim Henson's memorial service and ended up crying. It's been an emotional roller coaster ride. <laughs> yeah, full Muppet immersion this week. Uh, I had a good time. Sounds like it. I was working. <laughs> well, that's... <laughs> poor decision-making on your part. (laughs) And I was thinking about all of this, and I suspect that the Muppets have to be considered one of the most formative influences of my childhood. I mean, long before movies, before I could even read, so before books and comic books, there were the Muppets. Sesame Street premiered the year I was born, and watching those clips this week on YouTube, I was amazed to discover how many of those songs and skits were permanently etched into my brain. Yes. Like, I knew every goddamn word (laughs) of stuff that I would have thought that I forgot 45 years ago. It's all still in there. And then, around the time I was six or seven, outgrowing Sesame Street, if anyone ever really outgrows Sesame Street. The Muppet Show premiered, and that pretty much carried me through my my tween years. Certainly, I think, if we are discussing how the pathways for humor were wired Mm. into my brain, Mm -hmm. I think right up there with Warner Brothers cartoons, I think the Muppets are responsible for better or worse. Did you have that kind of relationship to the Muppets? I did. I was trying to even remember. I can't remember a time where the Muppets weren't sort of in my world. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that I still watch them to this day, but I've, I don't remember what it was like to have not seen the Muppets. And right. not in the various forms, in Ses- if it was Sesame Street, if it was Fraggle Rock, if it was Muppets Tonight, whatever it was. They've sort of been with me for a very long time to the point where, well, one, I think just the indelibleness of it. Mm-hmm speaks to how potent it was as a learning tool mm-hmm. because you just don't forget that stuff like yeah. you learned it on you will never forget how to count to 12 because you saw it on sesame <laughs> street and if you ever forget you can see that funky ass so and I, in preparation for this i was thinking about how many things are in my brain like that like, every time I go to the grocery store, I do the loaf of bread, container <laughs> of milk, stick of butter. Uh-huh. So it's just, it's part of my language. Yep. And I'm thankful for that because when you were telling me we were getting ready to talk about the Muppets, I actually, this was one of the few times that I came into the studio very happy because I have just positive feelings about it. Wait, what, what were you doing all the other times? Very depressed and sad. <laughs> Questioning our love. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, and I think part of it is I love music and Mm -hmm. Sesame Street and a number of the Jim Henson properties just really effectively and powerfully used music Mm -hmm. in a way that I don't know that we had seen before Sesame Street in terms of bridging music with learning in that way. I mean, it was it was all based on the cutting edge research of Mm -hmm. the time, too, about Mm -hmm. pedagogy. And about how you could get children to learn. It was all very deliberately done, but in that way that makes it, that never made it feel. I watched Sesame Street not even thinking about the fact that, that I was you supposed were learning. To be learning yeah, something. you just received it. It was just fun. Yeah. And there was, I was actually just reading 
So in, in 1970, fewer than 20% of four-year-olds attended preschool. Mm, mm-hmm. But nearly 40% of four-year-olds in America were what? watching Sesame, Sesame Street. Street. Yeah. And this is just a year after it had premiered. Yeah. A study released in 2016 by the National Bureau of Economic Research suggests that the TV show is the largest and least costly early childhood intervention that has ever been implemented in the United States. And among other findings concluded that exposure to Sesame Street reduced the likelihood of falling below grade level by 16%. Wow. That's kind of amazing. It really is. There's this great article recently published in the New York Times called How Sesame Street Started a Musical Revolution by Melina Rizek. And it was just talking about how important a component sort of music was to the learning of children, but also just the breadth of artists that showed up. Incredible. And there's this quote in there from Lin-Manuel Miranda that says that Sesame Street was the quote-unquote shared childhood songbook. It's the closest thing that we have mm-hmm. to And I thought that that was such a great way of putting it because speaking as someone who hates musicals, it was sort of the first time that I realized, oh, my God, I was watching musicals this whole time <laughs> <laughs> and was loving it. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> like that it was this sort of great American songbook thing. Yeah. Across all of his shows. And the talent and that the ta- came I mean, through Sesame Street. It's just... And just as far as introducing... I mean, I was, you know, a little white boy in rural Maine (laughs) (laughs) being exposed to Lena Horne and people like this that came through Sesame Street. Nina Simone's and Young, Gifted, and Black, Sitting on a Stoop, which is just a a beautiful thing. CLA Cruz was on there. R.E.M. was on there and doing Happy Furry Monsters. (laughs) Uh, Stevie Wonder did an amazing live set of Superstition. And the kids are, like, headbanging and, you know, playing maracas. (laughs) And it's not like he made it a kid's version. Right. it was super sticky. Yeah. <laughs> it was like you went to a Stevie Wonder concert and his like funky ass band is playing. But yeah, there were classical artists, jazz artists, Latin artists. Mm-hmm. We, it was just everything. And it felt organic because it yes. was almost like these people are just stopping by the neighborhood. So yeah, I loved music was one of the probably one of the more important takeaways from Sesame Street for me. Well, and just the, in the larger sense, just the integration of Sesame Street was remarkable for any, I was going to say for TV, but for anything at the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Again, looking back to my childhood, those might have been the first black people that Mm -hmm. I ever saw, Mm -hmm. or certainly the first that I spent time with, you know, on a regular basis. Yeah those characters yeah but it wasn't even just like the pop artists the songs that the muppets sang were pretty fucking phenomenal yes i mean c is for cookie is a great song <laughs> rubber ducky rubber is ducky a is a great classic song. batty bat by counts <laughs> it's a great song doing i, I recently i recently discovered learned the count's full name which i had never known before i did not know the count had a full name he does he is count von count nice <laughs> very good i'm a fan and it wasn't just like happy songs they were also allowed to be melancholy Mm -hmm. which i think i liked as well and didn't know like as a kid i don't know that that's what i liked about it but i liked that not easy being green is a that's a sad ass song it is a sad song (laughs) and if you really someday want to completely fall apart watch big bird singing that at jim oh no i've seen that clip we'll not watch it again no (laughs) (laughs) pretty much fuck you up for life nope won't do it to myself. Will not do it to myself. Beautiful song. Will not do it to myself. And then that, I mean, that music thing you're talking about, then carrying over to The Muppet Show. Yes. And, I mean, The Muppet Show, and I had not even realized this. Again, I, have, I did do a little research this week, just reading up on things. The Muppet Show was basically the most popular TV show in the world mm-hmm. for several years. Yeah. I mean, it was... Hundreds of countries around the planet were tuning into The Muppet Show. Yeah. It was just amazingly popular. And again, I think the first year they had trouble getting guest stars. Mm -hmm. And then by the second or third year, they had a waiting list a mile long of, you know, the biggest stars in the world all dying to be on The Muppet Show. Yeah. And those, I mean, it is, was basically these fantastic music videos. And again, like you said, not all of them are funny. No. Some of them are, but some of them are just really poignant and sad. And the time in a bottle sequence, just weirdly powerful. Yeah. One of my favorites from Muppets Tonight, Prince, who was then not known as Prince. He was the artist formerly known as Prince. Um, and so there was a whole like running bit through the episode of them having to show a picture of the symbol and not call him Prince. Um, 
he, famed funny man Prince. Fam- but Prince is actually very was actually very funny um, and game. Like he was just totally into yeah, it. He he was it, a good it was sport. Just, and it was perfect. But he sings a song about starfish and coffee, which <laughs> is still one of my favorite songs. But it's like that's fucking Prince. Yeah, with the Muppet. <laughs> See, Muppet Tonight was the later version. And they and did a little Muppet version of Prince. And he had little curly hair. <laughs> that was that was the later version yes. of the Muppet Show. I think yes. and I think that was post Jim Henson. Yes, it was. Yeah. So I never saw much of that. Mm-hmm. Have you seen I haven't even checked have you seen the movies? Um, so I've seen Labyrinth. Okay. That may be the only movie. You haven't seen, seen any of the Muppet movies? Oh, the Muppet movies, yes. Okay. I have seen the Muppet movies. Okay. Um, Muppets Take Manhattan. <laughs> um, Great Muppet Caper. Great Muppet Caper. And then there was a recent one with, um, what's his name? The, like, lanky white dude. He's in all those. <laughs> yeah, I know who you mean. Uh, I don't remember his name either. Oh, my goodness. Jason something. Uh, Seagull. <laughs> sure. That sounds name? right. Yeah, I think there were two of those, actually. I saw the first one, and it was fine. It was Cute. Yeah, so that was 2011 called The Muppets with Jason Segel. Yeah, it was all right. I nothing, don't remember nothing it. to me has has sounded right since Jim Henson. I mean, died. that's it's a pretty iconic voice and character, and, and like Kermit always sounds wrong, <laughs> and the personalities sometimes yeah. are off too. Yeah. There was a very short-lived TV show mm-hmm. last year or the year before called The Muppets. That's right. They did try to bring it. And it was wrong. Yeah. Like, they got it wrong. They yeah. got the personalities wrong. They got the point of it wrong. It just, it didn't feel right and right. nobody liked it. Yeah. It went off the air very quickly. Yeah. Alright, well, do you have a do you have a favorite Muppet? Um, I like the Yip Yap Martians. <laughs> Uh-huh. 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 Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> I enjoy them. I've always been a fan of Beaker. Sure, sure. Maybe I like ones that don't speak. Apparently, yeah. That's, that's we. I'm just now realizing that. Um, can, you, can you do Beaker? I can't do Beaker. <laughs> I can't do Beaker. <laughs> um, and then I was big into Fraggle Rock, which I know was after your time. That was a little bit after my time. Yeah, I think that I was in high school. But I loved Red. That was I had not realized that was HBO's first original programming. Yes. So no no Fraggle Rock, yeah. no, you know, Deadwood. Fraggle Rock was awesome. <laughs> um and actually I watched a couple episodes in preparation for today, just sort of mm-hmm. reminding myself. And I got to the second episode and there's there's this character Wembley. He gets trapped by it's a long story, but he gets trapped. And then he's freed, and he says something like, some slavery feels like freedom. And I was like, damn! <laughs> I was like, that fucking deep. That is profound. <laughs> just like, so, yes. <laughs> what about you? Do you have a favorite Muppet? Um, I mean, Kermit, obviously, is, it, yes. you know, essential. Yes, he is. And he's, as I've been watching things, I've realized that Kermit is basically the greatest straight man mm. in the history of entertainment. Mm-hmm. He's just, he's the calm center of the storm. Right. I always loved Ernie, Ernie's very of, Ernie of Ernie and Bert. Yes. I think Ernie, I feel like that's my sense of humor. In fact, I, I think you and I, I think you and I are the Ernie and Bert. I am absolutely we not have Bert. The, I think How you're Bert. dare you? <laughs> I am not Bert. Bert was all stiff and exacting. And uh-huh. I, I, no, yeah. I am nothing like that. Humorless. I am not Bert. I'm Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> and my job is just to annoy you, no, basically. I'm Oscar the Grouch. You are, you're a little bit Oscar. I'm a little Oscar. I'm a little cookie monster. <laughs> When you're hungry, you're Cookie Monster. I'm Cookie Monster. Although now I think he can't even eat cookies because of diabetes or something. It's yeah, weird. there's, yeah. yeah. So I'm pre-diabetes Cookie Monster <laughs> and Oscar the Grouch. I'm going to uh, say something that's probably like sacrilege. Okay, sure. I never got the Elmo thing. Okay, so he, I was just about to say this. Because Elmo was after my time, too. He was. I always loved Grover. Yes. And Grover was sort of the proto-Elmo. That's true, yes. And then... When I think when Elmo came along, I think Grover got Phased shoved out. to the back of yeah. the closet, which is not cool. Yeah, I don't know what year Elmo premiered, but know. it was it was definitely after my. It was after childhood. my time too. Elmo was after me. Yeah, but yeah. I just never. You know, far be it for me. Whatever works for the kids. But, but he was annoying in a way that the Muppets <laughs> hadn't been annoying before to me. Like they had always been interesting, and mm-hmm. Elmo just seemed very like I don't know needy and weird. I just didn't get the Elmo thing. So. Why does it work so well? Do you think? What what is it about those damn puppets? <laughs> uh, what is it about those damn puppets? I mean, I think in general we just like puppets. Um Sometimes puppets are creepy. Sometimes puppets are creepy. I mean, I think part of it was they were so varied. 
like every puppet had its own look, had its own mm-hmm. personality, so you could identify with them. I think there's something about seeing a puppet moving through the world in the same way that we like. They were just they would go shopping and they would hang out. And it, <laughs> it was just like I don't know about the magic of puppets. Yeah, I don't but know. But there is something about a puppet mm-hmm. that we can deeply identify with, and you forget that it's somebody with their hand up a. A, a sock. You, like, for, you forget <laughs> even when you're looking even right you're at looking it. At That's them. the thing. Because Jim Henson would go on talk shows yeah. and he, there's no illusion. It He's works. just sitting there with the puppet on yeah. the end of his mm-hmm. hand. But everyone who ever worked with them will say, you ended up, you're talking to the puppet. Yeah. You're not talking to the puppeteer. Yeah. Well, the, that, that puppet yeah. comes alive the mm-hmm. second they put their hand in it. That article that I mentioned earlier in the New York Times was talking about all of the artists that would go on and be like, I want to meet Grover. It's yeah. like, Grover's not real. Yeah. <laughs> just, this is some dude down here. Grover's like, but it just, I think it speaks to their artistry and their genius of just mm-hmm. like they became and it their is, own people. It is the puppeteers. And yeah. that's something that Jim Henson always made a point of. In fact, I read people said that they were surprised at how Jim Henson treated the puppets. Mm. Like he'd take them off and just throw them down <laughs> on the table and it seemed wrong. <laughs> like, oh, that's, you know, like other people would say they would like apologize to the puppets. <laughs> but he was like, you know, that's a piece of fell. Right. The character is in my hand. Right. That's where the character yeah. of Kermit is, is yeah. in my hand. Yeah. But I think part of it is, and this is something I hadn't really thought about until I started reading, you know, I read like a biography of Jim Henson and stuff this week. These were the first puppets made specifically for television, Mm. which is a very up-close, intimate format. There had been other puppets on television, like Howdy Doody, or uh, you're probably too young for Kukla Fran and Ollie, but they were on television Mm -hmm. when I was a kid. But those puppets were made for live performances. Mm -hmm. And, you know, TV was live, too. So there was an audience, and that's how they were made. These, Henson made these specifically for the television camera. Mm -hmm. And that was how they shot them, because you could just use the frame of the lens to cut off the puppeteer. So, again, the the people are just there. You didn't have to be behind a proscenium stage, like, you know. Hiding the puppeteer. But then I just think they're so expressive. Yeah. And I think I think it's that combination of the simplicity of them mm-hmm. with how just amazingly expressive they were. Like just, you know, squeezing your hand together mm-hmm. and making the... Kermit used to do this thing with his lips where he would <laughs> yeah, just be like, exactly. it would get tight and he'd just be like <laughs> wrinkling it up. And it's just, it was perfect. <laughs> it was perfect. But yeah, I think it does require a level of seamlessness too, where it's just like, there was no breaking of that wall. Like it, you really did believe I am watching a pig talk to a frog right now. <laughs> oh, Bert, this is going to be such a great movie. You're just going to love this movie. It, it's got everything, Bert. It, yeah. It's got love, and it's got surprise, and yeah. it's got it's got fear. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and besides all of that, it, it's funny, too, Bert. Excuse me. Yeah, you've told me that a hundred times, Ernie. I'm sorry. Oh, but, uh, hey, the movie's about to start. Oh, this is going to be so great, Bert. Oh, oh I'm sorry, Bert. I, I'm sorry. I really didn't mean to spill my popcorn all over you, Bert. I'm sorry, Bert. It was buttered, too. Oh, yes. Well, it's better that way, Bert. <clears throat> oh, look. The, the movie's starting now, Bert. Okay. So let's let's move on to talking about this film. And in a sense, we are doing the film a disservice, and we are doing it the exact same disservice that was done to it the first time around. How so? When it came out. Because we spent the first half of this talking about the Muppets. Mm-hmm. These are not Muppets. Henson did not call these Muppets. These are, they called these creatures Okay. And in fact, they're, some of them are not even puppets. They're mechanical. They're, it's a whole different technique. It's a whole different way of doing it. And it's a whole different purpose. Henson had never intended either himself or his puppetry to be pigeonholed as for children. Mm-hmm. And he had never intended it to be strictly for humor. I don't think he resented it. I don't think he was ashamed of it or anything like that. But he just, it was not the only thing that he wanted right. to do. Right. And the Dark Crystal, I think... You know, having basically conquered the world with The Muppet Show, I think The Dark Crystal was his saying, okay, now I'm going to do mm-hmm. something else. It was a different kind of storytelling. It was a different kind of story. And it was a different kind of puppetry. They had asked him to develop the character of Yoda for The Empire mm-hmm. Strikes Back mm-hmm. previously. And that was sort of a test run of whether you could do a whole, quote unquote, realistic <laughs> character through puppetry. Henson had always wanted to direct movies. He had been trying to make some version of this movie since the mid-70s. Everybody kept wanting Muppets, so they kept putting this off. 
finally got the financing to do this, and it's it's more adult in tone. It's more like a dark fairy tale, and it was not particularly well received. Hmm. The better early reviews were sort of like this one from Richard Corliss in Time. He said, As narrative, the incidents in the Dark Crystal are unremarkable. As an excuse for special effects, fanciful decor, and eccentric characters, they do nicely enough. The invention is impressive, but there is little indication of the Henson Oz trademark, a sense of giddy fun. Miss Piggy would take one look at the place and order pink satin drapes. And that's what I meant when I said that we're doing it the same disservice right. that it was done back then, is that everyone was expecting Muppets. Not taking you it You go in expecting just something yeah. from Jim Henson. You expect a certain amount of silliness. You expect a certain amount of fun. You mm-hmm. expect color. And this was something very different from that. Mm-hmm. Vincent Canby in the New York Times referred to it as watered-down Tolkien. Oh. Said the screenplay is without any narrative drive whatever. It's without charm as well as interest. That was harsh. Really harsh time. Yeah. And it really bothered Henson. Like, Henson was horrified at the reception of this film. I remember, I mean, it came out when I was 12 or 13. I have only seen this movie once, and I don't remember it very well. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons I've only seen it once is that I didn't like it very much. Mm. And I remember being excited to see it. I remember expecting to like it and wanting to like it, and I just didn't. Hmm. And I don't remember why. That's a, This is one of the reasons I wanted to watch it with you. I wanted us to watch it again. Because I, I want to go back and revisit it without that expectation of right. whatever I had then. Yeah. That if I was... I don't know if I was expecting something more like the Muppets back then and was disappointed with what I got. Um, I don't remember if it was too adult or not adult enough for me. I, I don't know. It has, I think, developed more of a cult following in the years since. And people have grown to appreciate it for what it is not for what it was not right. back then. I don't know. I'll be curious to see what we think of it. Hmm. But everybody agrees that it's technically an amazing achievement. Of course. I'm sure it is. And every single thing in it was made by hand. Wow. I was reading something, somebody working on the crew said, you know, if we needed a chair, we didn't get a chair from the prop department. We made a chair in the style of the creatures that, you know, it was like every single thing on screen mm-hmm. had to be lovingly handcrafted. So I don't know. I don't know. We may not like this, and that's okay. okay. We may we may be disappointed with this as well. You're a big fan of Labyrinth. Though, I love right? Labyrinth. I think it's fantastic. And Labyrinth was not well received either. Really? No. Labyrinth did not get good reviews. It was not a big I mean hit. it's ridiculous. That was actually even a bigger disappointment than the Dark Crystal was. Mm-hmm. And as far as what Henson had hoped for from it, yeah. he was even more disappointed with the reaction to Labyrinth than he was to the I mean, I would think Stone. that would be more in line with what people would be expecting from Henson because it's it's silly and light. And I mean, it's a little dark, it, but not really. Mm-hmm. And it's David Boyne, a fucking codpiece. <laughs> How could you not love your Labyrinth? Fo- your focus on that is I mean, because it's hard formaling. not to focus on it. It's like, okay. So... <laughs> But it's these cute sort of, I guess these would be the be creatures too and not Muppets, but it's the cute creatures and that's interesting. I thought Labyrinth was a big No, a it, big hit. it has, again, it, over the years it has become a beloved classic that mm-hmm. people are very nostalgic about. But it was not a hit when it, in fact, it lost money when oh, it came wow. out. Um, the Dark Crystal did not. Dark Crystal actually, Henson, he was getting a lot of studio interference on it. They were worried about it. The early test audiences did not like it, and that was troubling them. Henson actually bought the film back from the studio before it was released. Mm. He spent, it cost about $15 million, which was about every cent he had. And he said, I'm just going to buy this back from you, so I have complete control over it. That ended up paying off. I mean, I think the film made... $40 $40 million or something like that. Mm-hmm. So he didn't fortunately lose everything on that, but he could have. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he cared. I think that was, you know, the kind of guy he was. Is that He believed he, in it. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go watch it and see what we think. If people are watching along at home, Dark Crystal is available on Netflix currently in advance of the new series coming out next week. Okay. Let's go see. Okay. It begins as a quest. You must find the shard. The crystal shard. The crystal shard? To save our world, you bling. A wonderful fantasy adventure. 
journey into a mystical realm of sights and sounds. Enter the world of the Dark Crystal. What's it for? Hmm? Hmm? Is that what you want to know? You want to know what this is all about? Is that it, Gantler? Now from directors Jim Henson and Frank Oz and Gary Kurtz, the producer of Star Wars, comes a new dimension of fantasy and adventure. to another world, another time, in the age of wonder, the Dark Crystal. And we're back. During the break, Nakia and I watched The Dark Crystal. Nakia, I will admit that I was really hoping that this was some kind of misunderstood masterpiece. Uh, I... I did not have that experience watching it. Mm -hmm. Instead, it turned out that my 12-year-old self, who thought this was kind of boring and didn't want to watch it again, (laughs) I I feel like he had better judgment than I ever gave him credit for, that kid. Um, This was a bit of a slog. A little bit. What did did you think? Um, I think I respect the effort and the intent more than I do the actual product. Okay. The level of technical prowess is it's clear like there are a number of different types of puppetry there's more sort of traditional puppetry mm-hmm. than there's animatronics and there are like the big walking land walker <laughs> things and so <laughs> technically it is absolutely impressive uh-huh. uh i think that henson does a, a an extremely good job at world building um the, <laughs> i don't I, even know I about mean, that. I think the environments are really layered and everything like when jen is going through his trek through the woods in the wilderness i mean we see there are a lot of things in the background that wouldn't need to be special in any way but they are done with care and particular attention yeah there's a lot of life and a lot of detail yes. More detail than Jen's face. Um, okay, but- well, that we'll get to that, definitely. <laughs> so I respect the world. I also respect what I think he's trying to tell a really complex story in what has typically been a traditionally, a format that has traditionally been geared towards younger audiences. So, I mean, you got slavery, you got genocide, you got this, like, fascistic oligarchy going on questions about like the duality of man like there there are a lot of themes at work i don't know that it's it's, a little darker than sesame street it's definitely darker than sesame street i don't know that the story rises to the occasion of those themes. i don't see i don't think it does and i'm not okay maybe let's start there okay let's start with the story Mm -hmm. i think we can summarize it pretty quickly yes so is this world there's a crystal there's a crystal what does a crystal do uh, it seems to be sort of the the force, the energy that holds the universe together somehow. Uh, sure, okay. Um, the crystal of truth, the, I think they sure, call it. Whatever it is, but it is shattered at some points, yeah. and that results in the creation of two races. Right. So, spoiler alert: from the end of the movie, at the end of the movie, the two races are reunited as yes. one race. Right. So they were originally one race. Right. The crystal got shattered. Mm-hmm. Well, they shattered the crystal. The, the the one the united race shattered the crystal. We don't know why they did on purpose. That's what it sounds like. It, okay. They just say we shattered the crystal. They don't. There's no okay. explanation as to why. Or, somehow that split them into yes. two linked races yes the skexis and the mystics and the mystics yes the mystics are good sure the skexis are bad yes uh and then the skexis because they're bad ended up ruling the world mm-hmm. while the mystics are just sort of like spiritual and they're more connected and, to nature yeah. and about the natural order of things yes and so we find them at the point where they are both sort of dying out there are right, 10 skexis left and 10 mystics left right um the Skeksis, in their bid to uh, maintain their power, killed all of the 
Gelf- Gelflings. Gelflings. Right, because there was a prophecy. Right, that a Gelfling would be the one to restore the crystal to wholeness, and then that would undo everything that had been undone. I don't know, it was some, something. Um <laughs> Which, yeah, okay, so, right. right. There was a prophecy that the Gelflings would end the rule of the Skeksis. Yes. Which, yeah, prophecies are just lazy writing to me. Well, but, I mean, I think they speak to, most religions rely on some form of prophecy, so, and I know you have feelings about that. I do, yes. (laughs) So it's not out of bounds that a creator would decide that the prophecy was the thing that their story relied on, was going to be the driving force in what is a very... A story driven on sort of fate and mysticism and magic. I mean, it's it's just going to be what it is. Anyway. Okay. So anyway, yeah. So then they, this is the genocide part. This is yes. they went and killed. They wiped out, wiped all, out the all the Gelflings. Gelflings. Except for one that we know of at the beginning of the film. And that's Jen, mm-hmm. who has been raised by the mystics. And they know that he is going to be the um, the prophet that they have been waiting for. And so the beginning of the film is all about, sh- one, showing you what makes the Skeksis and the, and the mystics different. But at the same, the way that it is being narrated is in a way that makes their sort of journey and existence parallel, which again speaks to this, the fact that they were once one race. Yeah. Um, so the emperor of the Skeksis is dying and the... What is he? The Just master, the wisest, the of wisest the mystics, sure, they say, the master of the mystics dying. or whatever this is, is also Jen's dying. Parental figure, right? His sort of father figure, and in his dying breath, he's telling Jen, "You need to go on this journey to find the crystal shard so that you can restore the crystal and make the world whole again." Essentially, right? Okay, so the narration does a lot of work mm-hmm. in this movie. Uh, I would argue way too much of the work in this movie. I mean, for me, this entire conversation is going to be what went wrong with this movie. And okay. I think there were a lot of bad decisions. Okay. I think there's a lot of telling, not showing sure. that happens in this movie. Mm-hmm. Now, ironically, I read that originally Henson's plan had been to have only the Gelflings speak English. Okay. Everybody else would speak a made-up language and there would be no subtitles that would be painful okay (laughs) (laughs) so that would that would have made everything less clear Mm -hmm. and in fact that's the first test screening that's what audiences saw and they hated it and they were like we don't know what the fuck is going on we don't know what the skexies are saying to each other uh jim henson seemed to think that people could into it absorb it like Mm -hmm. like opera like you can watch opera and understand what's going on even if you don't speak the language Mm -hmm. yeah so i think that i i I think it was a good decision to have (laughs) them speak english but i feel like they went too much the other way i don't know that the narration was a late edition but i'm guessing it probably was Mm -hmm. because it just everything is just laid out so straightforwardly and just hammered home Mm mm-hmm and then, as you started to imply, I think the second mistake was the design of the heroes. Yeah. Jen is, he leaves much to be desired in terms of his design. And this may be why, partially why narration is needed, because you can't read shit on his face, because his face doesn't move. And this, it's mystifying. It's just static and weird. And I mean... <laughs> just, and I don't understand. It's these, I guess they're more realistic puppets than, say, Muppets. Yeah. But the Muppets are so much more relatable, so much more expressive. Yes. Those things, they're so stiff. Yeah, yeah. And you have a little of that Uncanny Valley problem where the more realistic they get, the less relatable they are. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. But realistic, but then also, like, I was... His hair just feels like something that was slapped on. Like, it doesn't... Mm-hmm. There doesn't seem to be the care and the details that you see with the regular Muppets. Or even with the Mystics and the, the Skeksis right. the Mystics are very layered fantastic. and very the detailed. great. But Jen and, and Kira, who is the second gel- Gelfling that we come upon, mm-hmm. she's a little bit better than him. A little. Um, and I think part of it is really the hair. Her hair just seems much more real his just looks like a bad Halloween wig or something. Like it's just, it doesn't work. And so I was just really confused about why he, this is our, our hero. Right. And he seems the least 
filled in, the yeah. least sort of thought out. And I just, it was... And it's not just the physical design. The characters are also just incredibly yeah, boring. Yeah, they're, they're very thin, They have yeah. no personality. Yeah. The voice actors are very bland. Yeah, there's no emoting you know, It's or not anything. like Frank Oz is doing the voices yeah. or even Jim Henson. Yeah. Henson did the puppetry on Jen, but he didn't do the voice on mm-hmm. Jen. If he had, again, Jen might have come to life more than whoever it was that actually ended up doing it. Yeah. They're so deliberately boring, I don't understand it. Yeah. Well, but I would even say, even in the decisions they made with Jen and Kira, I don't get why Jen was our hero. Kira, to me, did a lot more in the film in terms of advancing. Well, okay, so maybe maybe the prophecy was about Kira. Kira. I mean, Kira. She Jen. Was, Jen is the one that puts the shard back in the crystal at the right, end. But Kira Kira does does all, right, but Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's the one that can speak to the animals and the different sort of races in the world. She's the one that can ride the land, land standers. Striders. Striders. <laughs> <laughs> she's the one that is able to break free when she's in the the evil castle and they're trying to you know drain her spirit. So yeah. she, she just seems. Well, she gives her life too. She gives at the her end. Life, So she just seems like a much more temporarily as it turns out right interesting character and just seems much more motivated than jen who is the reluctant hero pretty much all the way right so yeah i just and i from what i've read it it seems like henson was aware of this but i think he had it somehow in his mind that the hero of this kind of adventure should be boring Hmm. which i guess i mean luke skywalker is kind of that same sort of who you also hated yes so maybe okay so maybe this is just a thing (laughs) But it's not, because there's no reason he has to be so boring. Yeah. Even Luke Skywalker was more interesting than Jen. I mean, he was whinier, but that's about it. (laughs) Okay. I do think that the Mystics are very cool looking. The Mystics are very cool. And they don't, again, personality-wise, they don't have a lot of personality. They just sort of do these Gregorian chants. That's sort of all that we know of them, and they move very slowly. But I, I think they're cool looking. Yes. And then the Skeksis are the most interesting things in the movie. Well, they're so just Baroque and like it's they've they just look like beings that have just accumulated stuff mm-hmm. on their bodies for years and years and years. There was a one scene that I really did like was when the Emperor dies, which can we pause and say that was a horrifying scene. <laughs> so the Emperor's in the bed with his like what do you uh his scepter, his scepter and all of the other Skeksky Skeks. I'm going to have trouble with that. All the other Skeksis are around the bed, just basically waiting for him to die so that they can claim the throne. And one of them even reaches for the the scepter, and the emperor's not quite dead yet, so he's like, back the fuck off my shit. (laughs) And then he takes, like, this last breath. He's like, I'm still emperor. And then we see his face just crumble to ash as he dies. And it's it's a little bit horrifying. I'm just like, that's... It's really horrifying. That's that's a lot there for... So um, that moment was horrifying. But anyway, (laughs) two of the Skeksis... The Chamberlain and some other and one. The guy who becomes the, the new guy who emperor, becomes emperor decides to fight it out. The Chamberlain loses, and for punishment, he's like banished from the the community. But yeah. what that means is like they attack him and they back him up against this wall and strip him naked of all of yeah. the clothes and everything that he had layered on top of him, and he's like huddled and broken <laughs> against the wall. It was a it's naked. It's naked and just it was a very vulnerable, weird moment. And I was just like, Whoa, and they this are is like they're a lot. they're so big. They're so big. Until then, right? Then it's like and you then strip it's, everything you, away it's from this them. Sad and he's little the sort like of skeletal, insecty skinny. bird looking yeah. thing, and it's really like that was one of the more interesting moments. I thought again, I don't think it would be appropriate for children, but <laughs> it was just. But yeah, so they are these people that sort of wear their greed and wear their sort of gluttony on mm-hmm. them. So they're really interesting characters to look at. That feast scene is was disgusting, pretty impressive. And it's disgusting, but it is very That's where, you, if you want to talk about the craft of yeah. this movie and just the incredible detail yeah. of every single object on screen, mm-hmm. that, that scene is pretty great. Well, and even Agra, is that... Oh, yeah, I like her, too. Which I think she's supposed to be sort of non-binary, because she has ram horns, which are male, mm. but she has very pendulous breasts, which are So I think she's supposed to be some yeah, amalgam- Augur well, needed a bra. Augur's supposed to be some amalgamation of gender or something. <laughs> but what I, but again, was designed really interestingly, because there were all these things that you could look at. One of her eyes came out, and then she also had like a third eye, and her body was just 
bulbous and mm. play, and it was interesting. And then she would do this thing while she was speaking where she would squat. And I was like, is she about to burst something or lay an egg or what? Because she would sort of and just make this noise, but nothing would happen. And mm-hmm. it was, a re- but it was just like, that, that's weird. <laughs> so a lot of it, they were just, it was an odd, an odd assortment of characters. Her home was pretty great too. Her home big, was awesome. Like huge model of the universe that or spun something around, that spun around. And it, was, and it was really great. It was how she could tell the future because mm-hmm. she spun the model. Yeah, it was, it was very cool. Pretty cool. And so then you the had, big beetle things came in and trashed it. You had those characters and those sets and then you had Jen and Kira. Right. And then also Kira's pet Fizzbo. What the hell was it? Fizzgig. Fizz gig. Which was basically just a fur ball that they like rolled around the set. Fizz gig. Until it was close up, and then his mouth was open, and it was just all these teeth. But yeah. otherwise, he wasn't really designed no, at he's all. he's a dog. Yeah. So, I just, so it was interesting, just the contrast, and, like, these seem so thought out and so interesting and intricate. And then the heroes that we're supposed to be identifying with were just, just seemed barely sketched out. And again, I think Henson must have decided that the audience wants to project itself mm. onto the hero, so mm-hmm. therefore the hero has to be a blank slate. Sure. I think that was a bad decision. Yeah. They're just so boring. And the design is so bad that you, to me, you can't project yourself right. onto them. Right. They are, you are very distanced from them. Mm-hmm. As opposed, again, to a Muppet. Like, yeah. you put a sock on a hand, that's something that you can relate to. These mm-hmm. things you cannot relate to. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, <laughs> what else? <laughs> the podlings, we didn't talk about. Even the podlings were more interesting. The podlings were interesting. Another horrifying scene. Though. Yes. I mean. Oh, yes. Very sad. They were a little, like. Almost like little pebble creatures, little sort of... They're, they're, they're kind of like fraggles. They're, they're a little, a little bit like fraggles. Well, actually, they're more like the doozers, the construction, right. the doozer construction right. guys in the fraggles. Because they were just sort of circles on top of circles. Um, but their world, their village, where Kira, Kira grew up with the mm-hmm, podlings, mm-hmm. that reminded me of Fraggle Rock. Yeah. That sort of, that seems to sort, sort of, of cave like under... Yeah, yeah it, very much so. What we find is that the podlings have been turned into what is essentially a slave race. Because what is literally a slave race. What is literally a slave race, yes. Because the Skeksis sort of round them up, take them back to the castle, and then they have this contraption where the dark crystal sucks their life force out of them, and then the Skeksis are able to drink the life force and sort of moisturize themselves briefly. (laughs) Um, But that scene where we're watching one of the podlings get drained, there's this beam of light into the pod's eyes, and you see their eyes basically go gray. Mm-hmm. And then their face just sort of caves in as their life force is sucked. So it's a very all the colors drained out of them. A graphic scene, the same with the Emperor for puppets. It's it's really graphic and visceral in yeah. a way that is disconcerting. So yeah, yeah, there are a lot of moments in this movie that are really dark, mm-hmm. and I think most of them are kind of redeemed at the end. Like the Podlings get their life force yes, back yes. at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't sure that was going to happen. Yeah. At one point, the dog, he wasn't a dog, but I'm going to call him a dog, <laughs> gets kicked into a volcano, right. basically. But is able to hold on. And you on. think he's dead. Yeah. But it's like, oh, shit, that was a dark moment. Yeah. But again, then we find out he was saved. But still, it's sort of shocking <laughs> just how dark that gets. Yeah. Well, and if you are an audience member that was going in there expecting, this is the dude that made the Muppets. Right. Like, <laughs> right. I can see why people came out of it and felt negatively about it because it's like, that was, that's a totally different. And then some of it's dark in ways that don't get better. Like, everywhere first Jen and then Jen and Kira go, they attract those giant beetle monster things that come, like, they come and they trash Agra's house yeah. and totally destroy that beautiful house. And, you know, and actually we think she's dead for a little while, right. too. And then they do the same thing to the Podling Village. Mm-hmm. They, that's horrible. And then they ride those land striders, and then those things kill the two land striders yeah. they were riding, too. Yeah. Like, it's just awful. Yeah. And nobody seems very concerned about that. Like, I would like to see a little guilt or something on the part of Jen. And Jen feels a little guilty after the Podling home is destroyed. Yeah. He's like, that was totally my fault. And Kira's like, the beetle things come, and it, it happens. It's not your fault. But yeah, no. Every, no I, destruction I, I, follows I think him it was, I think it everywhere he goes, and it would have been better had he stayed alone <laughs> all right um so you started to talk about the chamberlain i actually thought he was one again one of the more interesting he was it sort of went nowhere in the end yeah i mean he so he was exiled 
after he lost the throne. Um, and then he, we basically just see him following Jen and Kira around trying to sort of ally himself with them so that he can come back to the Skeksis community having captured the Gelflings. Well, that's the thing. You almost think it's going to be sort of a redemption story right. for him. Yeah. That having been cast out, he learned his lesson right. and became a halfway decent person. No. Yeah. And then it turns out, no, he's just, no, no. he's still evil. He just yeah. Well, because they're an evil race. Yeah. So that wasn't going to change. He was just willing to sort of play that part in order to try to trick them into it. They didn't fall for it. But yeah, so, I mean, he definitely was one of the few characters that had an arc if we I mean it was Well that's just, the thing yeah. is that I thought he was having an arc yeah. and then it turned out he well, wasn't actually having an arc. He was motivated was by something a and Mobius he, he strip. Was... <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know what to do with this. So, let's talk about the story cuz you you said you thought it was trying to tell this sort of complex, sophisticated story through this sort of simple I don't think it succeeded, but yeah. Okay. Cuz I didn't the story to me and I understand it's supposed to be this kind of mythological symbolic Mm -hmm. story for me the symbolism of it didn't resonate it didn't mean anything to me Mm -hmm. okay so this race split itself into two good and evil and then came back together like i think the good stories like that they feel like they're true on some kind of fundamental level Mm -hmm. like they resonate in you and like oh that means something to me Mm -hmm. this one didn't is it trying to say something did you get something from it because i just didn't no i didn't um i mean it I feel like there was a lot probably happening off the page that just didn't make it to the screen. A lot of probably thinking about this idea of coexistence and the duality that lies within each. Like, there's good and evil, and what does it mean? Like, that you need both in order for there to be some sort of balance in the universe. Right, which would make sense, but that's my problem with... When we see them reunited, mm-hmm. those are basically angels, yes. the new race. Yes. They're, they don't have both sides. You know, if they became like humans, mm-hmm. if they became like normal people mm-hmm. when their two sides were united, that mm-hmm. would make sense to me. But no, these are just more ethereal creatures right. somehow. Yeah. What happened to the Skeksis side? What happened to that duality? They're, they have no duality. Yeah. They're even more ethereal and boring than the mystics were. <laughs> I just don't get it. It doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah, no, that's a good point. It doesn't point. feel like it's saying anything profound to yeah. me. What it reminds me of is George Lucas, when George Lucas takes himself too seriously. Mm-hmm. Like when George Lucas started thinking that his whole bullshit about the force actually had some profound value to it. When really it was just a silly thing <laughs> that he made up. This feels like, I don't know. It, it doesn't feel like there's any real philosophy there. It just feels like Henson wanted to make a movie that was serious. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I have no idea. Do you think maybe because he was trying to balance having doing what he thought was a serious film with something that still needed to appeal to a younger audience? Like maybe he was trying to do both and then failed to do either. Maybe. I don't know. But I do think he failed to do either. (laughs) (laughs) I think if he, you know, doubled down on one side of that equation or the other, uh, I think half of the audience would have been better off. Yeah, yeah. like I said, I mean, I think it's, like when I say, I think that there was maybe a lot on the page. Like, I think there was probably this whole mythology that he had in his head or was written out or was written down somewhere and it just didn't make it. Maybe. I mean, from what I've read, he collaborated with a designer called Brian Froud on this. He had seen some of Brian Froud's illustrations in like a book of fairy tales or something mm-hmm. and called him up and said, hey, I want to work on designing this whole world. And from what I've read, the design of the world came first. Mm, okay. The story came later, mm-hmm. and that may be the problem. Yeah, is that it's like, oh, we got these creatures and these creatures, and what does it all mean? And maybe they're the same creature, and it was all sort of assembled after the fact, mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. and they tried to make something meaningful out yeah. of it. I don't know. I do think. I mean, there are definitely visually things in here that are very cool. And I think there are moments I like. There are little lines that I like. Mm -hmm. I like when he's explaining to her what writing is because she's never seen writing. And he says it's words that stay. That's a nice little line. Yeah, yeah, it just never really came alive. And I think we've talked about Labyrinth before. Labyrinth was not well received either. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Labyrinth bombed even worse than the Dark Crystal did. But to me, what Henson wanted to do, I think he achieved it much better in Labyrinth than he did here. Mm -hmm. I think that's a much better mixture of the light and the dark and the kind of slightly more sophisticated storytelling, but still making it fun, still making it interesting. This is just kind of dull. (laughs) 
Well, there was humor to Labyrinth, and there was yeah, there's there really not an was ounce no of humor, humor in here in this film. Um, How is that possible yeah, for the creator just... of the fucking Muppets? <laughs> I don't understand it. And maybe it was maybe it was this point that you made earlier that he was taking himself very seriously, and he lost that. But um, that's not like humor is not anathema to good storytelling. No, it, no, no, it helps. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, it's just misjudged somehow. And I'll be interested to see, I don't know if I'll watch the new series, but I'll be interested to see what they do with it. Mm -hmm. Because I do think another writer could have come in on this script and punched it up and made the characters more interesting Mm -hmm. and everything. So if they do that on the new series, it may work. Yeah. Um, It doesn't look from the trailers like they've improved the design of the Gelflings. Yeah, I mean, the Gelflings pretty much look the same sort of immobile faces. It may be a little better, but it's, it's, they're still pretty static. What I will say is it looks like maybe, and this may just be the benefit of having 10 episodes or however many episodes, that there will be more world building. So mm-hmm. maybe that mythology will get fleshed out in a way that makes it easier to connect with the story, makes the themes pull together a little bit better. Because I believe from what we could tell from the trailer, there was a whole Gelfling Yeah, so this is, a, this is set a thousand years right. ago or whatever. So, it's before the right. Gelfling genocide. Yeah, so it could be that that helps to just sort of help build the world and help make the story more robust but right. I, don't, I don't know yeah it wasn't great it was not great but it gave us an excuse to watch you know sesame street clips and fraggle rock clips and <laughs> well now i sort of just wish we'd watched you know one of the muppet <laughs> i'm sure there's at least one of those muppet movies i haven't seen so. i'm sure there's one at least one i haven't yeah. seen as well but so yeah maybe we should have just done that you want to throw this one out and do that instead <laughs> no like i said i respect the effort <laughs> i do too i just think it was a bit of a misfire yeah. okay any final thoughts Not really. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Nakia, we will record our next episode over Labor Day weekend, so I thought we should probably watch something appropriate to the holiday. Okay. Uh, So I thought about watching something like Norma Ray or Mate One, but ultimately I decided the best way to honor hardworking blue collar American workers would be to watch them save the Earth from a killer asteroid. Mm-hmm. I mean, Cesar Chavez was great and everything, but did he ever save the Earth from a killer asteroid? Well, I don't he, think so. he was real. He uh-huh. did real things. Yeah. So we're going to be watching Actually, Michael Bay's Advanced the Rights of Workers Armageddon <laughs> from 1998. <laughs> So instead of Norma Ray, mm-hmm. Roger and me, there are, there are lots of yep. yeah, that was a, that was an option definitely choices that could have been made. We are watching, I believe it's an Affleck. Is it Ben Ben Affleck? There is an Affleck. Be an also, astronaut. Also a Willis. As astronauts. There's a Buscemi. There's there's all all kinds of people in this. All right. <laughs> okay. I I think we're gonna have fun with this one. Mm-hmm. I feel like union should be striking against our show. It's, it's just, it's, a, it's in poor taste. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you can download earlier episodes, find our contact and social media links, or make a donation to support the podcast. As always, we encourage you to leave a comment on the show or suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means subjecting your partner to movies they really, really don't want to watch. say all good things come to an end. What's that got to do with this show?